Welcome to Ask Peggy About Your Finances, because prosperity is so much more than money. Brought to you by writer, speaker, and certified financial planner, Peggy Doviak. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Hello and welcome to the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. My name is Peggy Doviak and I'm a certified financial planner practitioner. This is a show for you to help you understand your money better. We look at the stock market and what makes it go up and down. We look at financial legislation that could impact your bottom line. In the Plan Your Prosperity segment, we take a deeper dive into a financial planning topic to help you understand some of the details. And finally, in the Ask Peggy segment, that's your opportunity to ask me a question about your money. So if you'd like to participate and hear your question on the air, go to askpeggy.com, that's A-S-K-P-E-G-G-Y.com, and you'll find a box where you can submit your question. Then I'll be in contact with you, get just a little more information to make sure I have all the details correct, and then I'll craft a question that can play on the air and be educational for the listeners. So let's get started with the Bulls and Bears market and economic update. And today I want to talk about the stock market performance in the month of January. In January, the Dow Jones Industrial Average went down 1.32%. The S&P 500 went down 0.29%. The NASDAQ, which, remember, can be quite resilient, although volatile, went up 1.44%. Gold also went up about 2.5%. West Texas Intermediate Crude dropped by 18%. And finally, the index I want to talk a little bit about today is the Hang Seng. That's H-A-N-G-S-E-N-G. And that's the Hong Kong index. And it went down 7.5% in the month of January. And I think that China is half of the story of what's wrong with the United States stock, stock market in January because of the coronavirus and the two things that have happened as a result. You know, first of all, markets don't like uncertainty. And so anytime there's a possibility of a global pandemic, you're going to have the market react badly to it. Just simply the stress of a disease that's out there that kills people that we're having difficulty controlling is enough to make the market go down. Add to that the quarantining of huge sections of China, the Wuhan district, areas where the coronavirus was starting, areas of high concentration, and then international banning of travel, which by default stops a lot of person-to-person international trade, and you wind up with the perfect storm to cause kind of an economic disruption starting in China, but very rapidly spreading across the world, probably faster than the virus is, because of the trading that the world does with China. Now, 
a little perspective on the coronavirus should be given. We're not really hearing a lot of perspective. It seems to be very panicked responses, and it's understandable, but it may be painting an awfully bleak picture. First, the coronavirus is less deadly than SARS. You remember the SARS virus that um, was incredibly contagious and incredibly um, deadly. People would get the disease and they would die almost always. The coronavirus isn't like that. And the actual death count, even in China, is 259. By comparison, as a percentage, more people actually are dying from the flu, the plain old flu that we get vaccinated against and then live our life, than they are dying from the coronavirus as a percentage. The only difference is there isn't a cure for the coronavirus. And although now I am straying outside the realms of finance, be very careful with some of the cures you might be reading on the internet. I am not a doctor. But I am smart enough to know that if you think you have coronavirus, go to the doctor. Don't go to the internet. Don't do something bizarre as a treatment. You need to go to the doctor and do whatever they tell you to do. And I kind of think that's a public service announcement that just needs to be said by everyone who's talking about this. The economic and trade issues, though, are really profound. And the lack of being able to shop during the Chinese New Year period. And even Japan had a lot of lack of lack of trading, lack of people going out and doing things. I just read an article this morning where the Japanese economy suffered badly during the New Year season because nobody was doing anything. So they're saying that the new cases might actually be slowing down in China. There will be an issue with cases that have spread to other countries because there's absolutely um, no way of making sure that that doesn't spread rapidly because people have been about half exposed to the virus and you can build up an antibody. This is what I've read. I don't know this for sure. But when you introduce it into a cleaner, purer culture where nobody has that disease, it could spread more rapidly. And by cleaner and pure, I mean as untouched by the virus. So it's got the market weird. What does that actually mean for us? Well, up until the last trading day of January, we were scheduled to close up. However, there was a huge sell-off in the market on Friday, and it threw the entire month of January negative. Now, Going back to 1950, when the S&P 500 was positive in January, 86% of the time it was positive for the year. Going back to 1928, when the market was positive during an election year then in January, then it was positive for the entire year 100% of the time, and very rarely in anything involving finance can I say always, but since 1928, if the market was up in January, it was up for the year every single time, and the average return was 16.6%. However, the market's not up in January, and there's 
always the reason and there's always the excuse. I'm not saying the market's going to be down in 2020, certainly not because it was down in January. But it's interesting to see because about half of the market is psychology. I'm curious to see what happens next. Does the market just shrug this off or does the market manage to scare itself with the scary story that it read right before it went to sleep? Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the legislative update of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today seems to be a lot of public service announcements. We have one in this segment as well. And it comes as the result of an IRS-issued guidance because of what happened regarding the SECURE Act and required minimum distributions. So when brokerage firms, those platforms that hold your investments, are trying to help you get organized for the next year, many times they will send you a letter that said you need to take a required minimum distribution this year. Or they may say, we default and we're going to send you your required minimum distribution on this day unless you choose another day. Or they'll say, you were going to send your required minimum distribution in the period when we've always sent it to you. But it's not at all uncommon to get a notice in January if you have required minimum distribution due. Well, remember that the SECURE Act passed at the very end of December, and many of the brokerage firms had already prepared all of their notices, and some of them had already been sent out. Now, the SECURE Act changed the date that people are required to take their RMDs. So if you were 70 and a half and you thought you needed to start taking your required minimum distribution, you don't. You don't begin to take it now until you're 72. Now, as a note, if you were already taking an RMD, the rules for you didn't change. So if you were already required to take your required minimum distribution, and let's say you're 71, you still have to keep taking it. It's only for people who haven't yet begun to take their RMDs. So people have received letters from their brokerage houses saying you have to take an RMD. But if you are 70 and a half and this is your first one, that's not true. You have to take it when you're 72. And as a result, the IRS said, no, they're not going to count it as a mistake on the part of the financial institutions because literally it wasn't their fault. And I'm pretty quick to be critical, but I'm not going to be critical this time. They were trying to act in a timely fashion, and the rules changed at exactly the wrong time. Instead, they're saying that the IRA owner needs to be notified by April 15th of this year that no RMD is due for 2020. The only issue I see with that is that's a really long gap that wrong information is out there. So that's why this is a public service announcement. If you received an RMD notification from your broker or your custodian and you're not 72 and you haven't started taking them yet, give them a call. Call your advisor. You should probably check in anyway. And it's a good opportunity just to confirm that you are correct, that you don't have to take it, and get everything organized in your RMD plan. So that's the fair thing. 
The second legislative issue I want to talk about today is the changes that the Fair Isaac Corporation, or FICO, system announced that they are going to be having new red flags, which is going to cause people's credit scores to drop, looking at situations that they hadn't been looking at before. So specifically, they're looking at what percentage of the debt that you have available are you using? Now, that's always been a little bit of a consideration, but they're focusing on it more. How much are you using new debt? And unfortunately, some of this analysis is retroactive. So you can't control what happened in the past. You can, however, be careful and not try to apply for a lot of new cards, not rack up any more debt. Obviously, you shouldn't be doing this in the first place, but be more careful because it's going to impact your FICO score more than it had in the past. Over time, the FICO reporting had gotten a little more lenient. We've had a fairly good economy. And so as a result, everyone's credit scores had been gradually rising. And the concern is that they want to be able to determine the good risk customer from the customer who has more risk. And so these changes are supposed to provide this information. So how do you impact your credit score? Well, number one, always make your payments on time. Late payments are a real issue. Number two, just because you get a discount, don't apply for that credit card because looking like you need credit can be an issue. Pay your card off every month if you possibly can. If you already have credit card debt, create a way to pay it down. Talk to a certified financial planner practitioner. Find out a way to get out of debt. If it's really severe, you could talk to Consumer Credit Counseling Services, a not-for-profit organization. I'm always very cautious with for-profit services. So you need to do your research. You need to be very careful that whoever you're working with is not ruining your credit before they tell you it will fix it. There's huge issues out there. It's kind of a buyer beware. So I want you to be careful, but I want you to know that if you have a lot of debt, it's going to hurt your FICO score potentially more than it did in the past. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Plan Your Prosperity segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today we are talking about IRA distributions, and specifically we're talking about early IRA distributions. And what can you do, and what are some of the pitfalls you might want to avoid? First, let's review the basic facts. If you have a traditional IRA and you are younger than 59 and a half, Unless you qualify under a certain list of exceptions, you'll pay a 10% penalty on the distribution that you take, in addition to the tax that you owe. So if you were 58, let's say, and you were in the 20% tax bracket, you take $1,000 out, you're going to lose 10% to the penalty and 20% to the tax. That's going to be a total of a 30% reduction. That's a big hit. On the other hand, if you waited until you were 59 and a half, 
then you would pay your taxes because remember you didn't pay your taxes when you funded your IRA, but you wouldn't have an early distribution penalty. So be careful with that. There is a workaround. It's called substantially equal periodic payments, also known as 72T. Now, what happens is people generally retire or something has happened and they've made a lot of money in their IRA and they don't want to wait until they're 59 and a half. So you can structure substantially equal periodic payments coming out of your IRA and you can take these without penalty but you have to follow the rules. You have to maintain taking the distributions for five years or until you are 59 and a half, whichever is later. So let's say you've made a ton of money in your IRA and at 45, you decide you want to take distributions. Well, if you're following the substantially equal periodic payment rule, you would have to take distributions for 14 and a half years, 45 until 59 and a half. On the other hand, if you were 58, you would have to take distributions until you were 63. The 59 and a half doesn't count if the five years is longer than that. You must take the distribution each year and you cannot take $1 more than the amount that has been calculated. Now, you can calculate the amount that you want to take three different ways. The first way is a fixed amortization schedule. Remember, you amortize the interest in your loan and you come up with what your house payment's going to be or your car payment's going to be. So it's an amortization. You can also use an annuitization method. Now, mind you, I did not just say you're annuitizing your IRA. You're using an annuitization calculation. So the amortization and the annuitization create even cash flows. Now, for most people, this is great. What happens if something begins to go wrong in your portfolio prior to having the ability to get to the end of when your distribution period is? And I ask that sort of hypothetically because it really happened. It happened in the dot-com crash, and it happened in the 2008 crash. Both of those had periods of run-up prior to the crash where a segment of the market did extraordinarily well. And of course, when someone's done really, really well in their investments, they're going to be a lot easier to lure into this idea of, hey, let's take the money out now. But what happened is once you've done the calculation, it doesn't matter what happens to your portfolio value, you have to take the same amount of distribution. And in both crashes, people literally got to the place that the amount they were required to take was not in the account to take. 
So there is a third way that you can calculate how much distribution you have to take, and that's using something roughly similar to the required minimum distribution tables for the IRA distributions after you're 70 and a half. Remember that when you're, I'm sorry, 72. <laughs> I just told you that in the legislative update. That's going to take a while for me to get used to saying. So remember, when you're taking your required minimum distribution, you use the account balance as the dollar amount you're figuring how much you have to take. You can do that in the 72T as well, where you look at the account balance from the last year. That way, the percentage you're taking is based off the account balance. If your account has gotten decimated, you have a way of taking the distribution. Additionally, the IRS will allow you to change from the annuitization or amortization into the RMD one time. So if you're in trouble, there is a way to fix it. I have seen the idea of taking the distributions really blow up on people. Remember, your IRA is designed for your retirement. Prior to 59 and a half, people are generally not retired. If you're at 45, maybe you've retired a billionaire, but it's more likely you're just wanting to get the money out. So you can really mess up your financial plan by draining the IRA too soon just because you want the money. If you have retired and you have a 401k plan or another retirement plan from your work, you can take distributions out of that plan without penalty prior to age 59 and a half. So if you retire at 55 with a 401k plan, don't roll it all into an IRA and take substantially equal periodic payments. Instead, leave money in the 401k that's enough to meet your need until you're 59 and a half. Now you haven't locked yourself into anything. You could always roll it into an IRA at a later date, but it will stop you from making a mistake because something happens in your life that you weren't anticipating. So be very careful. Sometimes you'll hear about this at a seminar. Sometimes you'll hear it pushed by financial professionals or a friend or the internet. So be very careful before you do this. There are many pitfalls to it. I want you to be careful. I want you to remember your retirement money is for retirement. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 and Norman for production and studio assistance. Welcome back to the Ask Peggy segment of the Ask Peggy About Your Finances show. And today's question is something that I am commonly asked by people. They'll say, Peggy, I've had some advisors tell me that my portfolio should be really conservative since I'm in my 60s. Or they'll say, wow, now that I've retired, I think I should be all in bonds. Or now that I'm not earning any more money, I don't want to take any risk in my portfolio, which is always followed up with, don't you think I'm right? And the answer is, it depends. And let me tell you some of the pitfalls of this thinking, along with some of the times it might be very successful. 
First, let me start by saying I absolutely understand the concern. It really panics people many times when they've stopped working and they don't have any more revenue coming in. And so the idea is I want to bring everything into where I can control it and I don't want to risk the market and I'm really, really nervous. The problem happens with the growth assumptions you've made while you were still working and doing your retirement planning. So if you've assumed a 6% growth rate, well, if you haven't made an inflation adjustment, that's actually a fairly aggressive portfolio because if you added the inflation rate back to 6, that becomes 9. That's a really high market assumption. So if it was 6, but it was before inflation, and now you're assuming a 3% growth rate, then, you know, that's not as risky, but it's still assuming that your gross rate of return is 6%. In today's current interest rate environment, achieving a 6% rate of return on a traditional fixed income portfolio is incredibly hard to achieve because the bonds aren't paying that much. Now, there are fixed investments that have higher yields. You need to be very careful with these and you need to be sure that you understand them before you purchase them. Remember, I always tell you to understand what you own before you buy it. But if you have a fixed income item and it's paying 8 or 9%, there's some risk inherent in that. Why is that so? Because we get return for taking risk. And if a bond portfolio, a government bond mutual fund, say, is paying between 2 and 3%, and you have an investment that's paying 9%, it isn't because the investment's so fabulous. It's because the investment is risky. People misunderstand that all the time. So if you are getting 9% from a fixed income portfolio, you need to look at it very carefully and make sure you understand what you own and that you're not so invested in a sector or a specific kind of investment that you could be taking on risks you're not even aware of. So getting totally out of the stock market is difficult. If you are still working and you know you don't want to be in the stock market after you retire, now is the time you can do something about it. And you can assume an incredibly low growth rate in retirement. Then when you retire, you've saved enough money. The problem happens when you change your risk tolerance level between when you make your projections and when you actually invest it. This is why I believe a risk tolerance profile is so difficult to complete accurately. Because when you're not taking the risk, many times you think you can take risk, and then when it comes right down to it, it's much harder to do than you thought it would be. So be careful. You've got to be internally consistent or you'll spend your retirement money too fast because you're not getting the growth rate you had calculated for. Now, if that's happening, one option is to defer retirement if you haven't retired yet, if you just get right up to the cliff and you see a problem, 
or work part time in retirement to increase your income. But you'll need a strategy of some kind to make sure that your money is sufficient to meet your retirement needs. I don't want you to reach the age of 80 or 85 when it might be hard to work and not have enough money. So be very careful. Work with a certified financial planner. Let them help you figure out what steps to take. Well, I can't believe how fast the show has gone again. Remember that I would love for you to be part of this. So go to askpeggy.com, a s k p e g g y.com and you can submit your question. Additionally, if you're interested in learning a little bit more about me, if you'd like to read my blog, if you'd like to see what brought me into personal finance, that's the opportunity to read about me there and find out why I do this show and why I'm so keen that you prosper. Thank you to Sports Talk 1400 in Norman for production and studio assistance. You may submit personal finance questions to the Ask Peggy Facebook page and learn more at peggydoviak.com. And remember, prosperity is so much more than money. <laughs>